Episode two. My name is Tom Peel, and I've got my wife, Naomi Reed, with us this week. Hello. <laughs> I had some advice from people. Well, I don't know if it was advice, but people said you can listen to a podcast a bit easier when there's two voices breaking it up a bit. Mm-hmm. So um, we'll we'll see how it goes. This is the this third. is my probation <laughs> period. <laughs> this is also our third attempt. <laughs> um, so, Naomi, what are we going to talk about today? So I think we're going to talk about um, the idea of fear when it comes to approaching new and potentially challenging topics. Yes, that is correct. So this is going to be an interesting topic in terms of approaching new ideas within the Christelphian community. What happens when you put forward ideas that are different from the traditional ones and how they're responded to. Um, so when dealing with challenging topics, or even traditional topics in a group, you're going to get people who are probably going to be comfortable talking with the topic at hand, possibly because they've done some research already. And then you're going to get those who are maybe fearful and worried about where a exploration of that sort might go. Because there are actually lots of things to fear. You could fear how this topic could change the group's morality. It could change where it gets its authority from. There's sometimes the silent fear of just not getting what other people are talking about. And kind of where where it will lead future generations as well. Yeah. How it will influence kind of younger, more naive people. Yeah, the vulnerable. And there is also the fear of being wrong in any topic as well. So sometimes the question is, what do we do about fear? How do we alleviate fear? Or should we be listening to our, our innate fears and kind of interpreting them properly? So yeah, if you're not too hot on psychology, uh, then just skip forward about 10-15 minutes and we'll get into the actual, what we're talking about. But I really want to explore this just because I find it absolutely fascinating. And to start us off, if you haven't seen them already, go and look at Cats versus Cucumbers on YouTube. It's a series of videos, often compilations, of people putting cucumbers very close to an un- aware cat. unaware cat. Uh, and when the cat becomes aware of the cucumber, it like freaks out, jumps, and often it's comical. I, in fact, I'd rephrase that and say it's always comical. But the, what this shows is cats have an innate fear, hardwired for long green tubular things because of their survival instinct to be protected from snakes. This even happens to cats that have never seen a real-life snake before, ever. Okay. Mm-hmm. Here's an excerpt from a psychology book called Maps of Meaning, The Architecture of Belief by a man called Jordan B. Peterson. He is here talking about an experiment with a rat in a cage. And this rat in a cage is administered electric shocks through the floor when a light bulb flashes on. And he says this. Such experiments first imply that fear in any given situation is necessarily something learned. Second, They imply that fear exists as a consequence of exposure to punishment and only because of that exposure. A problem with this interpretation is that the rat was inevitably afraid as soon as he was placed in the new experimental environment, even though nothing terrible has yet happened there. After he's allowed to explore, he calms down. It is only then that he is regarded as normal. 
The experimenter then jars the rat out of his acquired normalcy by presenting him with something unexpected and painful. He then learns to be afraid. Really what has happened is that the unexpected occurrence forces the rat to reattain the state he was in, or that same state in an exaggerated manner, when he first entered the cage. The fact of the electric shock in conjunction with the light indicates to the rat, reminds the rat, that he is, once again, in unexplored territory. His fear in unexplored territory is just as normal as his complacency in environments that he has mapped and that no longer hold danger. We regard the calm rat as the real rat because we project our misinterpretations of our own habitual nature onto the experimental animals. Okay, make mm -hmm. sense? Uh, yes, how would you summarise that, Tom? So it's about mapping your environment. So in our home, we've mapped our home. Mm -hmm. We know that the doors are locked. We know that we're the only ones in it. Uh, and we are comfortable and happy to walk around the house without any fear. However, if there's some, some noises downstairs, maybe a tinkling of glass, suddenly what we have mapped out as, as the known becomes suddenly unknown. Something unknown has happened. Something with potential for maybe negative or positive. Probably negative if we're hearing glass break. But the idea is that the rat doesn't learn to fear the light. It is reduced to a state of unexplored territory. So we have two states. We're either in explored territory or unexplored territory. And this associates with um, ideas as well. Um, so if we're presented with a new idea that we haven't explored or, or it's a territory that we maybe associate with bad things, we're often going to be scared of exploring that territory and would much rather be in a normal territory where we know everything. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what I think you're saying, so I have um, some queries about that general theory or perhaps your understanding of that theory but I would say that each time the light comes on the rat has already mapped an idea of when the light comes on this happened I would say that would be after the first few times that's then a known territory for yeah the rat. yeah it becomes known yeah yes it doesn't but, stop it being painful when it has to get electrocuted no but I'd say his fear of looking at the light is no longer oh my world is going to happen it's I know what happens now and this is horrible. But maybe the first few times it happens, that is... Yeah, absolutely. This it, is something scary. In the book, the rat freezes. Um, and that's its kind of... The only thing it feels that it can do when the light comes on is freeze to limit. So it develops a behaviour to limit the pain, limit everything. And we do that when when we come across new things or, or novelties. We develop a behaviour to protect ourselves. Mm. And actually, those behaviours are rituals. We go through rituals to kind of map out a routine to mm -hmm. essentially get us to where we want to be and provide ourselves with... And kind of protect ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I'd say, yeah, I still feel like there's maybe some holes in the um, the rat analogy, but I think the overall thing is that the, the one thing that many, many, if not most types of fear have in common is that all of a sudden it's something unexpected mm. um, and that root of many different types of fear is um yeah is important and innate yeah uh, okay so another example of this is uh you have an unexpected call into the manager's office at work and you know often your first feeling when someone says oh tom the boss wants to see you is what have i done wrong mm -hmm. right that's your your you have an instinct of 
you kind of search your memory and your mind to think, oh, what could this be about? It feels bad. A really good bit in this in this book where it says this. <clears throat> if you can't tell what something means because you don't know what it is, what then does it mean? It is not nothing. We are, in fact, frequently and predictably upset by the unexpected. Rather, it could be anything. And that is precisely the crux of the problem. Unpredictable things are not irrelevant, prior to determination of their specific meaning. Things we have not yet explored have significance, prior to our adaptation to them, prior to our classification of their relevance, prior to our determination of their implication for behaviour. Things not predicted, not desired, that occur while we are carrying out our carefully designed plans, such things come loaded with meaning, both positive and negative. The appearance of unexpected things or situations indicates at least that our plans are in error at some stage of their design, in some trivial way if we are lucky, in some manner that might be devastating to our hopes and wishes, to our self-regard if we are not. Unexpected or unpredictable things, novel things more exactly, the class of novel things most particularly, have a potentially infinite, unbound range of significance. What does something that might be anything mean? And I really like that, um, the idea of, there's that instant of, what could this be? What could I have done? What could, this could be a promotion, this could be me being fired. But in that instant, there's an unbound relevance and significance to being called into the manager's office it's only when you go and get up and explore and experience what's going on that you then know anything so mm -hmm. you you essentially have this unknown in front of you okay and so that relates to um kind of challenging topics and things is because if we just leave things as unknown they can potentially have unbound significance mm-hmm would it be suggesting that before something has become apparent, so someone say, says, oh, I want to start some challenging topics. So you, hmm. so in your head you're thinking, oh, okay, is this just going to be we're allowed to wear jeans at Bible class or is this going to be we should now believe in the Trinity, you know, before that bit. So I guess yeah. is it just talking about you have a reaction where you sort of prepare yourself for it. Mm. And, and I guess some, And that's the instinctive part. Yeah, and some people might prepare themselves for something with a mindset of, I'm going to say no to whatever this is. Yeah. I'm going to block it out. I'm going to protect myself. Yeah. And it's different personality types, isn't it? And different ex and experiences. Another person might say, okay, well, this will be interesting. Or yeah, yeah, I might yeah. not like it, but I'm going to have to sit and listen yeah. and consider. And referring back to the previous podcast, that's going to be a conservative reaction or a liberal reaction. The conservative one will be like potentially more cautious because they want to protect the in-group. The liberal one probably has less loyalty to a group. So they'll be more flexible and and happy to explore explore things. a new territory. Yeah, even if they don't like it in the end. Yeah. But kind of happier to explore. So um, we're going to use an example of creation and evolution as two things that um, could potentially cause fear. Like exploring those ideas could potentially cause fear. What I want to the, the place I want to get to with this is to understand that both parties, whether you're a literal seven day creationist or you're a evolutionary creationist, um, within both groups, you're going to have an element of fear in coming to your conclusion and using this as a template to explore just general challenging topics. I'm not coming to any conclusions in this podcast about any of this. I just want to use it as a, um, a stereotypical understanding of how these conversations might 
happen. So I think I would interject just with this is a good base to start from because I think yeah it aids the way that we talk about these difficult things so someone who is more progressive and is happy to push the boundaries and bring unexpected things into the environment because mm-hmm. that's their personality that's their maybe their upbringing it's important not to trivialize the reactions of people who you don't see as being as progressive as you are sure yeah. so it's easy just to think like oh that's a silly habit that they've learned or that's um that's just them being stubborn but actually it's that thing of all fear is related to a very, very deeply bound protection instinct that we have yeah. and that you shouldn't trivialise it and, you know, you can't just laugh about, oh, I went in wearing jeans to someone's Bible class and they didn't like it. Someone's not just being stuffy for the sake of it or in a habit or something. You're actually kind of disturbing and provoking something very, very important and kind of underpinning to that, maybe that person's entire worldview, yeah. what their basings yeah. on. So Absolutely. it's just the importance of that, I think. So, and this podcast is going to explore how it works and how it happens. We're not necessarily going to provide an answer as to what to do about it. We might come to that in another podcast, but this is just to understand the psychology of fear. And I think essentially the the end point of, of where we're going to get to with this is a liberal response to exploring new ideas would be something like, well, we should have faith. When entering into this particular unknown, we should explore with faith that God will guide us. Um, it is in the unknown and in these places that we grow spiritually and we learn more. Um, we're, we're not going to be saved from the storm or the refiner's fire, but uh, what is left is what is built on a sure foundation. So like with the um, par- uh, parable of the man who builds his house on the rock and on the sand, they both have to go through a storm. They both have to be refined in some mm. way. It's just what is the, the truth is what is left as on the standing as a founda- on the foundation. However, maybe the more conservative view to exploring challenging topics could be, well, we should have faith and be satisfied with and be obedient to the word of God. The word of God has been refined. We should trust it. God has mapped it all out for us. Perhaps in some areas he hasn't explicitly shown us the exact logical scientific route from A to B, but we must just trust in B nonetheless because it is from God and he sees things we can't. So essentially, the liberal wants to refine themselves through a autonomous uh, journey that they are liberally allowed to undertake. But the conservative depends on the refined word. Uh, one requires exploration of new territory. The other requires strengthening of the old. And actually, you could argue that a healthy church group should have both of those things in mm-hmm. it. Strengthen the old, but also kind of moving forward with new ideas and exploring things. If you can hear a car alarm and fireworks, it's because it's November <laughs> and when we're recording so it's this. all kicking off. So it's all kicking off. Uh, so here's another quote. Unprotected exposure to unexplored territory produces fear. The individual is protected from such fear as a consequence of ritual imitation, as a consequence of the adoption of group identity. Oh, can you explain that again? Okay, so we protect ourselves from fear through rituals. Mm -hmm. The Old Testament sacrificial system is a really good example of this. You've done something wrong and you're fearing judgment. Mm. So 
God provided a system of sacrifice in an, in order to provide them with a map to a, to arrive at a place of where they felt atoned for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, and it is that it's those rituals that are a consequence of adoption of group identity. So when you adopt the identity of a Christadelphian, you go through the rituals of a Christadelphian of um you know the sunday service the bible class the breaking mm, of bread the those. culture yeah absolutely which so, i think is maybe the most powerful thing that we probably doesn't sit that comfortably but i think it probably is yeah so the adoption of group identity restricts the meaning of things and confers predictability on social interactions mm-hmm. okay so when we have an authoritative moral foundation based on a particular biblical interpretation that deems it inerrant literal and unchanged it means that all that we know is all we have to know the unknown is not allowed to either exist or otherwise be explored it also becomes very easy for challenging topics to produce fear and for the fear to tighten control on group identity retreating back into strengthening tradition that is really true isn't it kind of when you say it is a very it's a very powerful thing to label our faith as the truth, mm. kind of capital T, and people who and kind of converts you'd say have found the truth. You know, we preach the truth. Our forefathers, you know, yeah, kind of found the truth. Yeah, that yeah, kind yeah. of thing. It is a. It does. It does suggest here it is, yeah. and there's nothing else to know. So one thing that happened in Australia recently was I think an ecclesia put out a a letter to other ecclesias in America to say. We we only believe in the literal seven-day creation and we, we want to kind of restrict and control the identity of Christadelphians mm. as those that believe in literal seven-day creation. A similar thing tried almost happened in the UK, but, yeah. but no one took it up. The debate around creation and evolution has, of course, many sides to it. You've got young earth creationists, old earth creationists, evolutionary creationists, possibly more. Uh, They're all probably very nuanced opinions. But here I'm going to put forward a broadly stereotypical view of a young earth, literal seven-day creationist for the purpose of showing how, when evolutionary ideas come along, it can provoke fear. I don't want to belittle the idea of seven-day creation. That's not the purpose of this. And I'm I'm going to do that one first. And then we're going to look at the evolutionary creationist angle as well to see where what provokes them to fear as well. And it starts, I guess, the same for for everybody, in that the world is full of unknowns. Fear reigns as we are destined for death. Sickness, social exclusion, and in extreme, war could break out into our realities at any moment. So that's kind of anybody's experience. But in contrast, the Bible is the divine word from God. It's a map that provides meaning to the meaningless. We can find comfort in it knowing what happens after the great unknown of death. It also satisfies the unknown of what happened before our birth. It contains a beautiful creation account that sets us in the image of God and the world as good. The Genesis account documents Eden's paradise as something literal that points forward to a paradise that we can attain through Jesus in the kingdom. It documents the fall of the first man, Adam, into the unknown and the beginnings of God's promises that lead to Jesus, the second Adam, our guide through the unknown, back into a relationship with God through his atoning sacrifice. Jesus undoes the consequence of Adam's sin that we are all born into. 
This view depends on Adam being the literal first man whose sin was a historical event. And then, of course, additionally onto all of this, we add uh, this uh, a belief system which provides a community in which we find traditions and rituals that help us map out how we should act socially and act out our relationship with God, giving us purpose and fulfilment. The creation story echoes the beauty of God and his word, just as the world is perfect and good, so is God's word. It is inerrant, it is literal, and it's uh, we, we gain so much from it. Would you say that's a fair-ish representation? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay. So when you bring evolution into this and the notion that the world is actually billions of years old and humans are millions of years old, there's, you know, many descendants before Homo sapiens, it can have the potential to reduce the young earth, literal seven day creationists worldview back to the unknown and back to a chaos that they found the Bible took them out of. So what it does, it attacks the core purpose and meaning and and belief system of that person and not only for them but for their community as well that they depend on so for them it cannot be true if it is true they stand to lose everything and fear is a natural instinctive protective and understandable response what you'll probably find is that they will appeal to the authority of of scripture as god's inerrant word um but you know, you'll find that they also appeal to creationist scientists or some scientific evidence that seems to point to a young Earth in order to be protected from the unknown. So entering out into that unknown of where evolution could take you is extremely terrifying. And and actually, again, that simple truth of, well, God's word is inerrant and literal and we just have to believe in that. Perhaps, you know, God's word doesn't provide us with the full map of a to b but here we have b written down for us from god i'm just going to believe in this mm. and have a simple faith um earlier when you were saying about getting called into your manager's office yeah and potentially if you were told that you had been fired that lots of complaints have been made about you you're a, you're a terrible employee we can't tolerate you that would be completely unexpected and would lead you to reevaluate everything that's happened in the past to you. So you might think, well, I was a, I thought I was a really good colleague. I thought I got on with everyone. I thought I did my job well. Now I've got to completely rewrite everything I've ever known to do with this job and m- maybe your uh, qualifications, including reevaluating your future. You maybe have to reinterpret your entire evaluation of yourself. Oh, I thought I was really good at my job. I yeah. thought I got on well with people. But this thing has come as such a shock that you have to completely reframe how you look at yourself, your career and everything. So uh, just taking the two extremes, someone who is absolutely creationist, 100%, having someone present some evidence or ideas about evolution that challenge that, the implication would be that you then have to do a similar thing and reevaluate everything you've ever known about it and work out how a new future will look with this Mm, new information. mm. And that is really frightening. So I think that goes back to the, the fear of and and not underestimating how frightening that is yeah so um, maps of meaning says when we meet one of these situations if we're ever kind of exposed to it accidentally it can be solved in only two related ways although we can avoid it in many others and i think that it mainly gets avoided we can 
alter our behaviours in the difficult situation so that those behaviours no longer produce consequences we do not desire or cannot interpret. Alternatively, we can reframe our contexts of evaluation, our goals and our interpretations of the present, so that they no longer produce paradoxical implications with regard to the significance of a given situation. So you can reframe your entire evaluation of reality, which is to say, oh, okay, evolution is true, there is no God. And actually, this does happen in our community. We, this is another reason for it being such a scary concept. Maybe we all know people who have decided that it's incompatible. I can't believe in God anymore. That's it. I'm out. I'm gone. So what was the first one? Yeah. So the first one was, we can alter our behaviours in the difficult situation so that those behaviours no longer produce consequences okay. we don't desire or cannot interpret. Yeah, that to me would mean you change your behaviour so you stop coming across these messages. So perhaps go make sure you go to a meeting where this isn't talked about or avoid places where... I'd say that that's the avoidance tactic. Um, isn't that altering your behaviour to stop... I guess so, in a way. So um, where I see that as happening is with the evolutionary creationist. So let's have a look at the what the evolutionary creationist does, because for them, it hasn't become catastrophic for their faith. They've managed to retain their goals of worshipping God, of striving for the kingdom and living a Christian life. But they've changed something, which means that they can believe in evolution. I okay. would... I think I would disagree. I don't think that's the definition of behaviour. I would say behaviour is a physical thing that you do, in this case, to avoid coming across those ideas. I think that's what it means. Then reframing your context is saying, OK, then I'm going to look at everything I've known, my plans for the future, and I'm going to change that. And I'm going to say my previous beliefs were not... Uh, that's as a sub. I guess you could see it on two levels. You could see it as a complete reorientation of your belief on evolution, but in... In which you in which you change your goals about creation, mm -hmm. in that way, yes. But I'm thinking as a whole Christian, you're changing a subset of ideas to retain your end goals of believing in God, which I would call reframing your context. Right. Well, <laughs> I'll we'll let the listener decide. So let's look at what has happened in order for them to have taken that option of assimilating evolution into their worldview without it becoming catastrophic for their faith. Stereotypically, this can happen for a combination of the following reasons. One, a legitimate belief in evolution through an exposure to and an understanding of it. Two, not wanting friends or colleagues to think they are backward, leading to a desire to have a faith compatible with scientific and broadly accepted thinking. So it's probably going to be a combination of those two, and one of those involves that fear idea. They then either adapt their understanding to a parabolic understanding of genesis one to three and because it is linked an understanding of the atonement that's not mechanical or an old earth that pre-existed before genesis one verse three but that doesn't really uh, maybe answer ideas of human ancestry so the evolutionary creationist is convinced due to studying the theory of evolution and seeing how it can fit alongside the bible but there is undeniably an element of how the other groups that person belongs to seeing literal seven day or even any sort of creation as invalid that will influence them. The evolutionary creationist has another group, their colleagues, friends or family, to which creationism is the cucumber that elicits the same fear that evolution does 
to the literal creationist. Um, we've talked about this, and again, I think I disagree that you can equate creationism as something that provokes the same type of fear as evolution to a creationist. Because I think someone It's not who... the same type of fear. Yeah, I think I would say that it would be a kind of more underlying fear of just concern that the way this ties up logically in my head doesn't work if I try and stick to pure creationism and also an element of I am influenced socially by people I know who aren't creationists. Yeah, cool. Okay, so the evolutionary creationist takes steps to reconcile their faith with their understanding and what that means socially. One view becomes the scientific view, the actual origin of the universe, and the other, a spiritual parable with a cultural context that aids their spiritual understanding and journey. Okay, here's another quote. Um, this one goes, We act to transform where we are into where we would like to be, which I think is an incredible quote that summarises all of our behaviour. We act, so if we want a cup of tea, we act to transform where we are in our tea state to where we want to be, which is with a cup of tea, and we use the ritual of tea making to map the way from this period of unknown tea... Desperation. <laughs> Desperation <laughs> to tea heaven. <laughs> okay, and it continues. When our attempts to transform the present work as planned, we remain firmly positioned in the domain of the known, metaphorically speaking. So, you know, we've made our cup of tea. Happy. When our behaviours produce results that we did not want, however, that is when we err. We move into the domain of the unknown, where more primordial emotional forces rule. Small-scale errors force us to reconstruct our plans, but allow us to retain our goals and our conceptualizations of present conditions. So say you go up to make your tea and you run out of tea bags. Your goal to have a cup of tea is still the same, but you have to reorganize yourself in some way to go and buy more tea bags and then achieve your goal. Mm -hmm. Catastrophic errors, by contrast, force us not only to reevaluate our means, but our starting points and our ends. Such re-evaluation necessarily involves extreme emotional dysregulation. So this would be when you go up to make a cup of tea and then your legs cease to work and you just collapse on the floor. All of a sudden, you're not worried about the tea anymore. You're worried about getting to hospital. Mm -hmm. You have to change your goal and your means. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I say for the evolutionary creationist, this is a small scale error because they have to adapt they they don't change their end goal of believing in god they are reconstructing their plan whereas if you come across evolution and then you decide to completely leave church and and have a relationship with god then uh that's a catastrophic error for anybody who sees a relationship with god as paramount so as i said at the start we end up back on that conservative liberal spectrum which is established by the moral foundations theory we looked at in the last podcast. Literal creationists is more of a conservative view in this spectrum. They're shocked by evolutionary creationists' disregard for group loyalty in, by being influenced by other groups, their disregard for the authority of a literal interpretation and the sanctity of a simple Bible truth. So they see the loyalty foundation, authority foundation and sanctity foundation being disregarded. The evolutionary creationist, however, 
sees their previously held beliefs as holding a small-scale error that an adaptation of category from literal to symbolic is solved. Now, some literal creationists could be construed by liberals as being dogmatic, insular and oppressive in regards to control over group identity, which in turn harms individual members in their liberty to explore and draw their own conclusions, as well as the whole group as it's ridiculed by the outside world. So liberals could see literal creationists as disregarding the care, liberty and fairness foundations. How fairness? Because it's not fair that this one group of people have dictated what the belief is mm -hmm. when younger people have grown up and are not allowed to explore as much. So it's not as fair. Okay. So, yeah, we get to those responses again. The, the liberal response could be, well, we should have faith when entering into a particular unknown and explore it. It's here that we grow spiritually and learn more. We won't be saved from the storm or the refiner's fire, but what is left is what is built on a sure foundation. And then the conservative response would actually be a kind of contrast to this. No, we should have faith and be satisfied with and obedient to the word of God. The word of God has been refined, so we should trust it. God has mapped it all out for us. Perhaps in some areas he hasn't explicitly shown us the exact logical scientific route from A to B, but we must trust in B nonetheless, because it is from God and he sees things we cannot. So there, we see the liberal wants to refine themselves on their spiritual journey, but the conservative depends on the refined word. The liberal takes this view because they depend less on loyalty, authority and sanctity, and more on the care foundation that is based on inclusion and liberty. But the conservative requires less liberty, more loyalty. Arguably, though, this is something that the community has done in the past with the very literal description of the devil we find in our English translations. We'd expect anybody who would wish to join our group to remap their ideas of a fallen angel, which is quite a traditional view, and explore a new idea which is more nuanced, that suggests that Satan is a purely spiritual and not a literal reflection of evil. Uh, it's more about man's heart and the office of an adversary. So there's an argument there that our forefathers would have when setting up Christadelphia in exploring a different answer to the devil and Satan. And that's quite an interesting point with regard to the Christadelphian community that it was, you could say, based on someone completely shaking up all of these things, mm. um, disregarding the authority um, ideal by kind of leaving their group um, and, yeah, using their liberty to completely re-evaluate what they believe. Mm, and mm. So, yeah, which is very interesting when now we talk about the truth with a capital T that's kind of unchanging and unquestionable. Whereas the truth that we have is based on an action that was almost the opposite of that, wasn't it? Yeah. And I guess when do you set the, the line in the sand and fix it concretely? Mm. Now, I don't want this to be sound belittling to anybody who has a seven day creation or a conservative standpoint, because it is a, a strong argument that a conservative has in in the idea that to modify the interpretation about the Bible too much, too quickly, or even at all, would destabilise the community and inevitably cause rifts. You would argue quite convincingly from scripture that we should never modify 
we are potentially the faithful few. If we set up this community based on the truth, then we have to hold to it despite anything. And if we see people falling away and going, thinking about other ideas, then that's just, will Jesus find faith when he returns? Well, here's people falling away from the faith. We're, we're near the end of days. This is all kind of making sense. We're like the, the three friends approaching a fiery furnace. And we have to be strong in that faith. However, we have to kind of, we do have to balance that with the idea that people have to be able to explore to some degree uh, of their own autonomy. Because I'd argue that our young people and, and maybe not so young people are finding answers in this increasingly information filled world from other sources very, very easily. If we're not having a platform or a space in, in order to ask the questions and provoke discussion without fearing a recompense from the group, then they're just going to go somewhere else. There's loads of podcasts that are really compelling and engaging that mean they find other platforms and places that have a strong care foundation that will provide them with the answers they need. Yeah, and I think because there is maybe a culture or an atmosphere that's maybe not explicitly said that you're not allowed to question and challenge things, but implied, that that would mean that people might seek answers elsewhere, but also that people might not seek answers and they might just have a vague feeling of, this doesn't quite make sense, I don't think it's for me, I'm just not going to come along anymore. Perhaps when I start university, I'll just not go along, my parents can't make me, or something equivalent. Yeah. Um, because the space was never quite there to kind of clarify things and ask the questions mm. that they wanted to. Sometimes there are a few things that are presented as reasons not to discuss things, and sometimes it is the young people that, that you know, it's going to influence them, it's going to expose them to these ideas and, and lead them astray, and there's valid reason for, for that because we've seen people be um, taken away from a relationship with God but I think the danger in that is that in today's world you just can't get away with not talking about it and didn't the Israelites say they didn't want to go into the promised land because they were scared about the children isn't that a kind of yeah that, that is one of the, the a very very old excuse if you will yeah yeah and, and so God says well then I'm going to take your children into the promised land and if you know you might argue that that doesn't apply to this but it, it's a Interesting, similar attitude. Yeah, so here's another quote from Maps of Meaning. When we are in the domain of the known, so to speak, there is no reason for fear. Outside of that domain, panic reigns. It's for this reason we dislike having our plans disrupted and cling to what we understand. The conservative strategy does not always work, however, because what we understand about the present is not necessarily sufficient to deal with the future. This means that we have to be able to modify what we understand, even though to do so is to risk our own undoing. The trick, of course, is to modify and to yet remain secure. This is not so simple. Too much modification brings chaos. Too little modification brings stagnation. And then when the future we are unprepared for appears, chaos. Involuntary exposure to chaos means accidental encounter with the forces that undermine the known world. The effective consequences of such encounter can be literally overwhelming. 
it is for this reason that individuals are highly motivated to avoid sudden manifestations of the unknown. And this is why individuals will go to almost any length to ensure that their protective cultural stories remain intact. So that's interesting. There's kind of two sides to that, aren't there? It balances the fear of exploring uncharted territory, but also the terrifying consequence of finding yourself in a place where perhaps, for example, there's no Christadelphians left. <laughs> Everyone in the next generation has said, this this isn't satisfactory. Mm-hmm. And there's um, kind of you and just a few people from yeah. your generation. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to round up this episode. Um, uh, we're probably going to maybe look in other episodes more in depth at the issue of creation and evolution. I just wanted to use it as a template to discuss the idea of fear of topics. So hopefully that's been done eloquently. Yeah, I guess the the main point is that these discussions are really important and you have to bear in mind the amount of fear that you're potentially going to cause for other people and be sensitive Mm. to that but that if you don't have these discussions then the future consequences might be much worse yeah and I'm, i'm hoping that through these podcasts we're developing a kind of a toolkit to talk about challenging topics whether you need to broach the idea of the spectrum of liberal and conservative or the idea of fear hopefully these things will be useful for you you wanted to end on the quote for that john thomas publishes Mm. this is words by james foreman and this is kind of like one of the principles i think john thomas kind of used which is never be afraid of results to which you may be driven by your investigations as this will inevitably bias your mind and disqualify you to arrive at ultimate truth. And also investigate everything you believe. If it is the truth, it cannot be injured thereby. If error, the sooner it is corrected, the better. That's from Herald of the Kingdom and Age to Come. 1859, volume nine, number eight. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I guess that's then balanced with the idea of God doesn't change and good God shouldn't be and his message shouldn't be um, made in our image, mm, as your dad mm. often says. That I think is really interesting. Yeah. So yeah, things to consider. Hopefully that's been useful for you. Uh, tune in again next time. Thanks for listening.